Good morning. You may notice that I'm limping, and the reason for that, you need to know this about me, I'm an athlete, okay? And yesterday, I was playing my one-year-old son who learned how to walk a couple days ago in soccer, and as I was schooling him, I tripped over my own feet uh, and was uh, rolling in pain on the ground. I looked like Dak Prescott, and as I was screaming in pain, I look, and my son is laughing literally harder than I've ever heard him laugh in my entire life. So he laughed before that. The hardest was when I got stung by a wasp. So some concerning signs. You know, you watch the documentaries about, you know, serial killers or whatever and the interviews of their parents and they're like, we could tell from a young age. So anyway, my name's Jared Lawson. Uh, We'll be in Psalm 8 this morning. Uh, You probably noticed as we've been going through the Psalms this whole semester that almost every single human emotion seems to be represented in the Psalms. So you have these incredible, uh, incredible Thanksgiving Psalms where someone's been delivered by God and so they're just praising him. And then you have incredibly, incredibly dark, depressing Psalms like Psalm 88 we looked at a couple weeks ago. And how did it end? Darkness is my only friend. And that's on purpose. One of the things the Psalms are meant to do is tutor us, in a sense, train us in how we are meant to relate to God. How do we pray when we look to the Psalms? How do we take our doubts to God? What do we do when we're caught in sin and we, we need to repent? We look at Psalms like Psalm 51. We see how David repented. We see, we get, we get kind of a fly-on-the-wall look at David's quiet time, if you will. What are we supposed to do when we feel spiritually downcast? What are we supposed to do when we're angry? Not just angry, but angry at God. We look at the Psalms. And so today in Psalms 8, we're going to get taught a similar lesson over a subject that is perhaps the most important, the subject of worship, the subject of worship. And you may say, isn't that kind of the one subject that we've got down? Uh, I I get, you know, a psalm on on doubt or something like that, but we kind of know how to do worship. Do we really need a whole sermon? And what David is actually going to do in Psalm 8 is press against us there a little bit because we've perhaps relegated worship, the subject of worship, the act of worship to a smaller place than it deserves. Let me ask you this, when you think of worship, what do you think of? We just did it, right? You think of Tim's face, and how could you not when you think of worship, am I right? Right, that's what we think of worship, but what David is gonna show us today in Psalm 8 is worship, rather than just being a specific time of the week in a specific place, rather it's meant to be a continual reaction of the human heart. Worship is meant to be a continual reaction of the human heart as we behold the wonders of our God. And so David today is going to show us by looking at creation, what does it look like for our hearts to just explode with worship as we look at creation, his creation. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we love you. It is a strange thing to preach on worship when we're so used to just doing it, to say how to, in reality, you need to do that in our own hearts. We can only worship because you've changed our hearts. We can only love you because you first loved us, so we pray that your word would do that, that your spirit would be active in our hearts, that Psalm 8 would genuinely teach us how to open our eyes all the more, where we don't just worship you on Sundays, but we worship you every day, every moment, every, every bit of your creation that our eyes take in, propel us to worship you. We praise you for who you are and pray that you would be made magnificent in this text today. In your son's name, amen. Okay, let's look at Psalm 8. See the title and then verse one. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So we first see David is the author, uh, and then immediately, no slow build up here, David right out of the gate is kind of showing us the theme of the psalm. He's praising God. 
He's doing it immediately, almost as if he's in a rush to do so. So two questions kind of rise up when we see this kind of quick praise from David. What is he praising about God? What is it about God that he's actually worshiping? And two, why is he being so compelled to praise God? So let's look at that first question. What is he worshiping about God? We see it in verse one. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? How majestic is your name? So what does that mean? What's God's name? You know this. Uh, It's not just his title. It's not just God. It's not just his name tag. It's his character. It's who he is, right? It's his reputation. When you've heard someone say, I'm going to go make a name for myself, what are they saying? I'm going to go build a reputation so when people think of me, they think of all these character qualities, things like that. Uh, We talk about it often, reference it often. In Exodus 34, when Moses says to God, show me your glory, I want to see your face, God says, okay, no, you'll die, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you on this mountain, I'll pass before you, and I'll declare my name. What does he do? Does he pass before him and just say, God? No, right? He doesn't give his name tag, rather he says this, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He declares his character. He declares who he is. And so David, what he's worshiping, he's not saying, how majestic is your title? How majestic are you because you're in charge? He's saying your character is majestic. It's who you are that is majestic. But that's not all he says. Keep reading. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You say, what's the big deal about that? In David's day, there's no real concept of one God that rules over everything. Rather, what you have is kind of local deities who are over specific nations. Okay, so Egypt has their gods, plural, and Assyria has their gods, plural. And when the two of them go to war, it's not just the king's or the army's reputations that are on the line. In a sense, the gods' reputations are on the line. Because whoever wins clearly had the more powerful gods. Whoever lost clearly has less powerful gods. Okay, that's the mindset of the ancient Near East. Have you ever noticed in Exodus when God says to Moses, I'm bringing these 10 plagues and I'm not just judging the Egyptians, I'm not just judging Pharaoh, I'm judging their gods. I'm judging their gods. What's God saying there? Obviously, he's not saying there are other gods that exist. We know the scriptures are incredibly clear. There's one God and only one God. What God is saying there is Egypt They're so-called gods, they're false gods. The demons who have tricked the people into thinking that they're actual gods, I'm gonna show that they're nothing. I'm gonna judge them and show that they're nothing. And so David here is saying, you're not just some local deity, you're the only deity. You're not just the God of the Egyptians or the God of the Assyrians, rather you're the God of heaven and earth. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so that's what David is worshiping. And then we have that next question, why? Is he being so compelled? Why is he in a rush to worship God? The first thing that we see is David is praising God because he's the creator. Praising God because he's the creator. Look at the rest of verse one. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens. All throughout the scriptures, you'll see people praising God. Why? Because he's just done something for them. You'll see that all the time, you know, even when we say we're sinners saved by grace, we're praising God because he's done something for us. You see Israel fleeing from Egypt, right? They're running, God parts the Red Sea, the Egyptian army follows them, God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians, destroys them, and what does Israel do immediately after? They sing a song, right? They worship, why? Because he's just delivered them from something, uh, he's just done something for them. But David here, 
isn't saying, you've just done this great thing for me, therefore I love you, you're majestic. Rather, we'll see this in verse three, he's walked outside at night and he's looked up and he's beholding the stars and he's beholding the moon and he's simply saying this, your name is majestic because your creation screams of your glory. Your name is majestic in all the earth because the creation that you have made screams of your glory. And notice, David is not stopping at the stars themselves. He's not just saying these stars are great. Rather, he's looking at the beauty of the stars and it's making him reflect on the greater beauty of their creator. The stars are making him reflect on the greater beauty of their creator. You know this impulse. When you experience something incredible, you know, your natural reaction is to want to know who made this thing? If you look at a painting that's beautiful, if you're artsy, and you say, who painted this? I want to go see other works by them. I don't know anything about art. Uh, if you experience great food, right? You drink great wine. What do you say? Who's the chef? I have to eat at his other restaurants. What vineyard did this come from? You want to know its maker. You hear an incredible song. What do you say? Who wrote this? Who is singing this? And similarly here, David is looking at the beauties of creation and saying, who made this? Who is the incredible maker who made these beautiful things? The beauty of creation points to the even greater beauty of their creator, or to say it another way, creation is beautiful because it was created by beauty himself. So David is beholding the wonders of creation. He's praising God as the creator, but that's not, that's not all he's praising. Secondly, we see he's praising God because he's his creator. He's not just praising God as the creator, he's praising him as his creator. Look at the first four words of verse one. O Lord, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. He doesn't just call him Lord, right? The one in charge, he's our Lord. What David is saying here is that incredible creator, the one whose stars declare of his glory, that creator is his creator. And he's given us a very important lesson here. Every bit of worship, that is gonna flow out of his heart comes in the context of his covenant relationship with God. He's not just Lord, he's his Lord. And if Psalm 8 is meant to teach us how to worship, here's lesson number one. If you don't see your worship of God in the context of his covenant relationship with you, then he's just always gonna be in the abstract. He'll be powerful in your mind, but he'll be uninvolved. Right? He'll be far off, he'll be uninvolved. But David here is saying, all throughout this psalm, when he addresses God, he addresses him directly. Notice that. As if he knows him intimately, because he does. Because he does. And if we miss that point, again, God will be powerful, but he won't be personal. And here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna serve him with all your might. He's the divine sovereign. You're, gonna you're going to serve him to try and earn an approval that he's already given you in his son. And you may get moralism, you may get religion, but you won't get the gospel. If you miss this key element, all of your worship should flow out of your relationship with him, this covenant relationship that he's infinitely powerful, but he's also loving and he's caring and he sent his son for you. Only then will this kind of joyful instinct of worship that we're seeing in David happen. He's not just Lord, he's our Lord. So David starts off on this kind of incredibly high note, this high note of praise in verse one. And then in verse two, it's a little bit out of, the, out of nowhere, but he, he's gonna pause and he's gonna give us a very important warning. So look at verse two. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy in the avenger. This is kind of tricky to translate in Hebrew, which is why it's clunky. You see there, in fact, if you read 
a bunch of other English translations you'll see, and they're kind of uh, have different conclusions, you say it that way. Essentially what's happening in this verse is there's a scene happening here where day, or God's enemies are drawing up against him in battle, and as they do, they're screaming. They're screaming, they hate him, they're screaming obscenities, they're trying to intimidate, why? That's a very common battle tactic in the ancient world. What does Israel do as the walls of Jericho fall? They sprint in and they scream, they blow trumpets. What does uh, Gideon do as they're fighting the Midianites? He screams running down the hill. What does William Wallace do with the Scottish army as they're going against the English in the Battle of Stirling? He screams, right? They paint their faces. Why? It's meant to kind of end the battle before it gets started. It's meant to intimidate, right? You're screaming all the horrible things that you're going to do to your enemies once you conquer them. It's meant to kind of capture their spirit, if you will. So that's what God's enemies are doing. They're coming up against him and screaming all of these things. And then how does God respond How does God establish his strength, as it says? How does he silence their great cries, still their great cries? With this great, awesome display of his power? No, with the praises of infants. With the praises of infants, he silences the great cries of his enemies. Now, we need to clarify, the Bible is always using imagery of kids, and we, in our day, almost always misunderstand it. Because rather than reading it through their culture, we read it through our own. And what are kids like in our culture? They're the center of our universe. You walk into a room with a baby, what happens to that room? They do a 180, they stop whatever conversation they were having and they look at that baby, they admire his cankles and his cheeks, all those different things, right? They're the center of our world. When our kids try and do the two most basic basic functions, I shouldn't brag because I just rolled my ankle yesterday, walk and talk, They're bad at both of those, and yet we film it and show it to everybody that we know. Watch him fall when he tries to walk, right? They're the center of our universe, right? But in the biblical culture, ironically, it's almost the exact opposite. Kids are a nuisance. They're weak. They have no real value until they can grow up and actually do something for society. Have you ever noticed in Jesus's day, kids get the exact same treatment as beggars and blind people? Blind beggars, as they hear Jesus coming by, they say, son of David, have mercy on me. What does everyone around them say? Be quiet. And when children come up to Jesus, what do the disciples say? Be quiet, get out of here, right? They get the same treatment, why? Because they're a nuisance, they're weak. And so simply what David is saying here is the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God simply uses the weakest, most vulnerable thing imaginable to silence the cries of his mighty enemies. And you say, that's really cool. What in the world does that have to do with a psalm about praising the creator? And you wouldn't be alone. Almost every commentator I read said Psalm 8 would actually flow way better if verse 2 was just kind of plucked out of there. We'd have one single theme, but verse two is kind of strange. But remember what verse one is about. Remember what this whole psalm is about, praising God's majestic name in all the earth. And so David here, by giving us this warning, is saying simply this, God is the creator, everything else, everything else is creation that is meant to know him and to praise him. And those who are foolish enough not to those who are foolish enough not to recognize his name as majestic in all the earth, foolish enough not to praise him but do the opposite, to cry out against him, will be shamed by the weakest thing imaginable. Those foolish enough not to recognize the glories of verse one will be shamed by the weakest thing imaginable. 
So you may say, okay, well, how do we become, who, who, who are God's enemies? Is it just, you know, those who literally hate God, those who literally cry out cuss words against him, tell him they hate him every day? Who are God's enemies? Well, think back to the first sin ever committed. When Adam and Eve take, the tr- take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they take a bite, what's happening there? Is it just that they've become intellectually aware of good and evil? Right, God just wanted them ignorant before. Don't eat of that tree because then you'll know what's good and what's evil. Is that what's happening there? Or rather, is it they've determined for themselves what is good and what is evil? In other words, they've said, I know God has said these things, but I know better. And they haven't become like God, like the serpent promised. They've tried to become their own God. And so David here is saying, being God's enemy isn't just yelling at him, rather it's trying to step in his place Those who say, your name isn't majestic, my name is majestic. You're not God, the creator of all the earth, I'm God. That is what David is saying here. And before you say, well, obviously, pagans, atheists, right? I'm in church after all. Those are the real enemies of God. Jesus is gonna take it one step further. Jesus actually quotes this verse, Psalm 8, verse two, in a scene in the gospels. Anybody know where? He's flipped the tables, he's cleansed the temple, and afterwards, uh, blind people, lame people, not just like emo people, but physically disabled like myself, come to him, and children. Notice the kids are with the blind and the lame. Come to him, and he heals them, and the kids are singing his praises, and uh, the scribes and the chief priests also come, those in charge of the temple that he's just cleansed, and they're angry. And they tell Jesus, don't you hear what these kids are saying? Tell them to be quiet, they're blaspheming saying that you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, I hear them. Have you never read out of the mouths of babies and infants? You have established strength, you brought forth praise. What's happening in that scene? Who recognizes God's majestic name in that scene? Who recognizes who Jesus is? The blind, the lame, and the children. And who are God's enemies in that scene? Is it the atheist? Is it the pagan? No, it's the religious, those who pray more than anybody, those who give more than anybody, those who fast more than anybody, those who know their Bible better than anybody. And so David here is saying, being God's enemy doesn't just mean hating him, it means trying to step in his place. And Jesus is saying, stepping in God's place doesn't just mean trying to be your own God, it means trying to be your own savior. It means trying to be your own savior, relying on your works rather than him. And so David has started off on this great high note of praise. And here in verse two, he's gonna stop for a second and say, there's a way to miss this that has horrible consequences. You must recognize if you're going to be a correctly created creation, if you're gonna do what you're created to do, you have to know him, you have to praise his name as majestic in all the earth. And those who are foolish enough not to will be shamed by the, by the weakest thing in the kingdom of heaven. And so David, for the rest of the psalm, after this stern warning, is actually gonna give us an example. What does it look like to recognize and praise God's majestic name? And we're gonna see the type of worship that comes from that. So look at verse three. Verse three and four. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. So here we see in verse three, this is the scene that's kind of creating the worship in the first place at night. David has walked outside, he's looked up, he sees the stars, and what does it cause him to do? Marvel at God's creation. 
He marvels at God's creation. He looks up and he just sees all the stars. Uh, Jeff and Tim and I just went to Big Bend uh, National Park and you look up and it's just more stars than you've ever seen. It's breathtaking. And David is experiencing that times, I guess, a billion because there's no electricity in his day to kind of blind out anything. He's got a candle, maybe. Uh, And so David is experiencing that and it's flooring him. His jaw's dropping. He's in awe of God's creation. Uh, C.S. Lewis Uh, The great 20th century Christian author wrote things like Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, things like that. He died in the 60s, the same day JFK was assassinated. Fun fact. Um, Anyway, C.S. Lewis loved God's creation, in particular, how the heavens declared the glory of God. He loved space, and it was showing up in his writings constantly. Uh, Does anybody know how Narnia, the world of Narnia, was created in in his stories? by now? Aslan, the lion that represents Jesus, sings it into being, creates by singing the song that creates Narnia. What's Lewis saying? He's saying creation is this song of heaven. It's meant to draw you in. It's meant to stir your affections as you behold God's creation. It's meant to lead you to this great place of worship of the creator. And in fact, what Lewis said is is one of the greatest effects of sin in his day is that man The 20th century man, the modern man, had actually lost that ability to wonder, to stand in awe of God's creation. Why? Because as the enlightenment happened and scientific advancement happened, rather than God's worship of God being furthered, right, as it should, you know, study should always expand our worship of God. Rather than that happening, just like in verse two, the opposite happened. Rather than worshiping God, man worshiped self his own ability to comprehend, his own intellect and and his own advancements and his own reason. So rather than looking outward and beholding God's glory, we looked inward and we beheld our own glory. We made our own name great in the 20th century. And so Lewis actually wrote uh, a whole trilogy, uh, a space trilogy on space travel. It's probably his least popular writing uh, where he calls Earth the silent planet. The silent planet, why? Because as the heavens declared the glories of God, Earth has shut its ears shut its ears to the songs of heaven. Right, they're inwardly focused, they're not outwardly focused. And in that story, Ransom, who's the main character, eventually gets kidnapped, put on a spaceship, it's kind of a weird story, and they fly out of the silent planet, and as he's going into space, going into the heavens, he's expecting this kind of cold vacuum filled with rocks. That's how, kind of how space was viewed, but what happens to him is he's bombarded with the glories of God's creation, and all of a sudden he feels more alive than he ever has before, and he feels more joy than he's ever had before. And again, Lewis saying, if we would but be still and behold the glories of God's creation, we'd be filled with this worship of the creator. We'd be filled with this joy of the creator. Now, Lewis wrote all that in the 30s and in the 40s. He's barely, there's barely cars around. Steve Jobs is just a twinkle in his dad's eye at that time. Can you imagine what he would say to us in our day? where we live, actually, you know, this is true, in the busiest time in the history of humanity, the busiest, the fastest paced. We have in our pockets all the time, 24-7, a cell phone that is designed to keep our attention, not just from those around us, especially from God's creation, just, hey, 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 look at me, check this text, look at this snap face, I don't know what the apps are these days, right? Constantly trying to grab our attention. The last thing that we're gonna do is be still and be quiet. Can you imagine what he would say to us today? Because our problem isn't the elevation of man's intellect over God. Rather, our problem is distraction. We're just distracted. We're too entertained. 
my, my family, and we would take uh, vacations to Colorado every now and then. Uh, and every year on the drive there, I would get in trouble for the exact same thing. As we enter Colorado, we leave the flat dirt of Texas and go through the other states. I wasn't really paying attention. And we get into Colorado, and there's beautiful mountains on both sides out of both windows. I would get yelled at because I was playing my Game Boy, right? I, I'm busy having this plumber eat a bunch of mushrooms and spit out fire. Uh, so uninterested in God's creation. I've got something better to do, right? A Game Boy, high scores, whatever. Distracted. We're distracted. And so Lewis is saying, similar to David here, if you would just behold God's creation, you would be brought to the place exactly where David is brought here, this place of worshipful awe. This place of worshipful awe. And again, notice David is not stopping at the stars. The stars are not an end in and of themselves. They're only fuel to his, to his worship. He's in awe of the stars themselves. They're incredible. But you know what he's in more awe of? Awe of the God who made the stars. The God who made the stars. Look back at verse three. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. In David's day, in the ancient Near East, everybody would have thought the stars and the moon were incredible. In fact, most nations thought they were so incredible that they worshiped them as gods themselves. But David here is saying, these incredible stars that are so great, people worship them as gods, these are but a work of your fingers. These are but a work of your fingers. That is how much more marvelous you are. They're marvelous because you are. He's not stopping at the stars. Again, his ears are open to the song of heaven. So again, 21st century Christian, are we too distracted for that? Are we too distracted to hear, to be drawn into this place of worship that David is experiencing here? Has worship just been relegated to Sunday mornings or when you're by yourself in your car and you won't be embarrassed by other people seeing you scream as you drive, scream worship songs? Has it been relegated to a smaller place than it deserves? Do we allow creation to draw us in and stir our affections? You know, we sing one of our favorite hymns. We sang it last week. I think we'll sing it at the end of the service. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. Is that true? During the day, do you see the star, night? Do you see the stars? Do you hear the rolling thunder? And does your heart react in worship? Or are you just repeating words on a screen or words not on a screen like this morning? Is it true? Do you allow creation to draw you in? Do you hear the song of heaven and worship him like David is doing here? So David is seeing the stars and he's marveling at God's creation, but that's not all he's marveling at. In fact, it's not even the main thing he's marveling at. Look back at verse three and four. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is ultimately knocking David off of his feet? Is it the stars? No. It's that the one who made the stars cares for him. It's that the one who made the stars cares for him. But I don't want you to misunderstand this. Look closely. He's seeing man as kind of the crescendo of God's creation, right? This great song, man is the crescendo. But look closely. 
He's saying when he looks at the stars, the stars themselves are marvelous. They're reason to praise. They're beautiful and they point to their beautiful creator. And so there's a temptation to say, well, if the stars are so marvelous, man must be that much more marvelous, which is in fact something I've heard quite a bit. But David here is actually making the opposite point. The stars themselves are marvelous. And when I look at man and I see man in comparison to those stars, it's not man that is marvelous. It's God's care for man that is marvelous. How could you, oh God, care for something so weak? When I look at the incredible stars and then man, you care for something so low, care for something so weak. Notice he doesn't say, who is man that you are mindful of him? He doesn't use the pronoun usually reserved for people. He says, what is man? Uses the pronoun for inanimate objects. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And some of you might be saying, look, you don't have to convince me of this. There's no one who hates me more than me. There's no one who thinks I'm more worthless than I do. And the good news is David's not done yet. David isn't finished just by simply talking about man's worthlessness. Man is infinitely inferior to these stars, but David is finding his worth not in comparison to these stars, but rather the reality that the creator cares for him. In other words, he's not finding his worth from within, He's not looking to himself and saying, oh, I'm so worthy. He's looking at God's favor given towards him and saying, that's where I find my worth. That's where I find my worth. And the reality that the creator cares for me. And if we don't find our worth there, the fact that he's created us and that he cares for us, one, we'll look for it somewhere else and everything else in your whole life is going to fail you. You look for worth in your relationships and what you'll find is you don't actually have any sort of loving relationships. You have people you've built around your life to serve you and you're gonna drain all of them as you try and fill yourself up through them if they're really there to give you worth. Or say, you know, maybe not relationships. You'll build your own power. You'll build your own worth, right? My worth is in my kingdom that I'm gonna build. I'm gonna go make a name for myself and when you encounter hard times and you will, it's impossible to avoid in this life, either you'll crumble You'll just see yourself as a failure all the time. You won't be able to function because you'll be so depressed. Or if it's not your fault, it's got to be somebody else's fault. And so you'll just blame everybody else in your life because you would be on this high pedestal if other people weren't dragging you down. You search for your worth anywhere else other than the creator who made you to know him and praise him. Nothing is going to satisfy. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Augustine says... So that's what David said. That's where his uh, worth is found. He realizes he was created for communion. He realizes he, he, he finds his worth in the reality that God cares for him. In fact, this Hebrew word care that is used, every other time it's used in the Old Testament, you know what it's used for? A shepherd watching over his sheep. A shepherd watching over its sheep. It doesn't just mean kind of warm feelings. It means to watch over. It means to be concerned about. It means almost to worry about. Right? A shepherd watching his sheep isn't saying, Look at these great sheep. Aren't they great? No, he's constantly watching over them, making sure they don't get dragged off by a predator, making sure they don't wander off because they're dumb, making sure they have a place to eat, making sure they're protected. Right? He's constantly watching over them. That's, the, that's the, the meaning of this word care here. God cares for me. He cares for us. He watches over us. And so David's worship, understanding this, isn't relegated to a time and a place. Re- rather, he realizes his worth comes from the reality that his creator cares for him and therefore there's no second of his day where he's not being bombarded with reasons to worship. 
every breath that he takes, every bit of God's creation that his eyes take in and the greater reality that the creator of that creation cares for him. What is man that you are mindful of him? David is in awe. But there's one more thing that's blowing him away. Let's look at verse five. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and all that passes along the paths and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So David here is taking it one step further. He's saying, you don't just care for man, you've crowned him. You don't just care for man, but you've crowned him. You've put him in charge of your creation. What's he getting at here? He's talking about the reality that God has created man beautifully distinct in his creation and given him a specific role in creation where he would rule over everything he created because he's made in his image. He's made in his image. Genesis 1, the first page of your Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates the trees after their own kind and he creates the birds after their own kind and he creates the beasts and cows after their own kinds and then he stops, shifts and says this, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And do you know what happens immediately after this? the narrative stops and we get a poem, right? this great crescendo of God's creation. God creates, er, God, so God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, the ultimate Lord of the heavens and earth makes man Lord over his creation. That's what, Lord, or that's what dominion means, to be Lord over, to rule over. This is the creation mandate in the same way that God uses babies in verse two, children to defeat his mighty enemies. God also uses low, weak man to rule over his incredible creation. The God, the creator with all glory and honor crowns man with glory and honor. The God with all glory and honor crowns man with glory and honor to rule over his creation. Do you understand what this means for your work? Do you understand what this means for your daily lives? Everything you do, nothing is pointless anymore. Nothing is mundane. Everything you do, you are meant to do as a representative, as an ambassador of the king of the universe. Could there be anything more sobering? Could there be anything more humbling? David sees it and it's blowing him away. You don't only care for a man, but you've put him in charge. You've given him dominion over your creation. Now, I need to clarify something David says in verse five, a little strange there. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings the angels, right? a bit strange, uh, that could be taken to mean you, man is somehow less valuable. You know, angels are up here value-wise, yet you've made man a little lower. And if that's kind of your conclusion, uh, the Bible is going to confuse us a little bit because all over the rest of the scriptures, man is seen as more valuable genuinely than angels. Uh, man is created in the image of God. Angels are not. Man gets redemption, Angels don't, right? Demons, fallen angels, don't get redemption. Jesus becomes man while remaining God. He doesn't, become, he doesn't take the form of an angel or anything like that. And the New Testament says we're going to judge angels, whatever that means, in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Man is more valuable, the rest of the Bible is gonna say. And so David here can't be making a statement about angels' value being higher than man's. Rather, what he's saying is their might, their strength is so much higher than man's 
and he's further worshiping that God yet has crowned man and not the angels. Surely the angels, who every time they show up in the Bible, the person they show up to falls down and worships them, and they have to say, no, 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 you're gonna get us both in trouble. Get up quickly, right? Don't worship me, right? They're far more powerful than man. They seem to be more competent. They deliver all God's messages on time, looks like. Surely they should have been put in charge of your creation, yet God has crowned man and not them. It's another reason to stand in awe. Why didn't you crown angels? You continue, you, you, you crowned man. Again, it's just another thing. He's standing in awe of God's grace. And again, notice, as we're thinking about this creation mandate, this rule that David is, is, is describing in Psalm 8, everything is seen from coming from the hand of the ultimate ruler. Every bit of rule that David has comes from the hand of the ultimate ruler. Look back at verse four. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion and put all thing, uh, over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. David, again, is seeing everything in the context of his covenant relationship with his God, his Lord, not just Lord, our Lord. And every bit of rule, this great creation mandate man is given, comes from his hand and is meant, he's meant to rule with the true ruler in communion, in relationship, in fellowship with the true ruler. And this is how it was always meant to be. Think back to the garden one more time. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree, you can eat of anything, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he doesn't tell them why. He tells them the consequences, you'll die, but he doesn't tell them why they're not supposed to eat. Why not? What does that show us? And I think it shows us God doesn't just want compliance with his commands. He doesn't just want external obedience. Rather, God, in our living out this covenant or this uh, creation mandate, wants us to live in a particular relationship with him, wants Adam and Eve to trust him, trust that he's good, trust that they get their comfort from him, their joy from him, and everything that comes out of their obedience is in this beautiful relationship of trust. And what is the thing that the serpent attacks? Does the serpent attack their behavior? Does he say, man, this fruit is so good. You gotta get in on this. I know God said not to eat of it, but come on, this stuff's like crack. No, doesn't attack their behavior. He attacks the relationship. He calls God a liar. He won't surely die. Questions God's motives. God knows if you eat of this, you'll be like him. He must be self-absorbed. He doesn't have your best intentions at heart. He's focused on himself, right? He doubts God's, attacks God's character, attacks their relationship with him. And who do they believe? The serpent. And that has been the dividing line. That's been the key question for all of us ever since. Are you going to live in this world as as a creature in relationship with the creator, will you trust him? Will you love him? Will you look to him for your meaning, your purpose, your joy? Or are you gonna trust the serpent, trust that he's not good, that he doesn't know what's best for you, that he must be a liar? And David here, joy seems to be bursting out of his heart why he knows he was created for communion and every bit of rule that he has is meant to be in relationship with the ultimate ruler. And remember, David is a literal king. He knows what it's like to command armies and they go do something. He knows what it's like to command servants and they go do something. Yet, yet he knows that every single thing, every bit of rule that he has comes from the hand of his creator and that's where he gets his worth, that's where he gets his purpose, that's where he gets his meaning and it's the same with us. 
If we don't see that, we'll fall. We'll try to be our own God. If we don't see everything that we're meant to do in this life is in relationship with our creator. We're meant to rule with the true ruler. It's the only way we have the same joyful instinct of worship that David has here. He keeps going. Verse seven, verse six and seven. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You see what David's doing here, listing off all these animals. He's starting from the most domesticated, right? Sheep, oxen in an agrarian society that would have been in everybody's backyard. Uh, And he works out to the most mysterious, works out to the seas, this place of chaos in the ancient Near East. Right? It's like he's saying, you know, dogs, cats, all the way to the great white, all the way to the blue whale. What's he showing? He's showing the extent of man's rule, all of God's creation. Even the creatures that would terrify us, the most mysterious creatures that if we got close, we'd feel pretty uneasy, has been put under man's rule. Has been put under man's rule from the domestic all the way to the most mysterious. This is the creation mandate that we, as the only thing uniquely created in his image, have put in charge to rule over all of his creation as his representatives. What we do represents him, the creator, in the same way the stars reflect his beauty. We're meant to reflect his beauty and how we rule over all of God's creation. And to David, this is something so humbling, so incredible, that the only proper response is exactly what he does here, wonder and worship. Wonder and worship. And we see that's exactly where he ends here in verse nine. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He repeats verse one, ending with this incredible praise. Right? God's creation design is breathtaking. It creates humility. It gives us a purpose that cannot be found outside of him and it causes worship. What is man that you are mindful of him? What grace that you care for him, that you've crowned him, that you put him in charge of your creation? This, this creation mandate is an incredible thing, but when you think about it, it's also a terrifying thing. It's also a terrifying thing because in the same way Like we just said, the stars are meant to reflect his beauty. Our lives are meant to reflect his beauty that much more. We're the crescendo of his creation. And if you know anything about the history of mankind or your own heart, you'll be terrified. Why? Nothing in all of history has ever dishonored God like man has. And if people are meant to look at a painting and ask, who's the artist who painted this? How is God represented when people look at our rebellion? Look at our sin, look at our rejection of his character. And in a sense, Psalm 8 is this great, you know, inspiring way. We've been given this rule, let's go out and let's, you know, rule over God's creation. But in a sense, it's just kind of the starting line. We're just to Genesis 1 and 2. And if you read anywhere else in the scriptures, you get to Genesis 3. And you see how man does. And we see man fails from the very beginning. Adam and Eve do eat the fruit. Cain murders his brother Abel. Abraham gives his wife away twice to avoid trouble. Jacob lies constantly, constantly. Moses murders a man and then publicly dishonors God. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Even David, the great author of this psalm, sleeps with another man's wife, tries to cover up his sin, and when he can't, he has that man murdered. He neglects his family. He trusts in his own military might rather than God's. Time and time again, even King David fails. And here's the reality. We've all followed in Adam's footsteps. We asked the question earlier, who are the enemies of God? Here's the answer, all of us. We've all rejected his majestic name. We've all tried to step in his place, try to be our own God, try to be our own savior. 
Creation does not look so glorious. God does not look so glorious when we take center stage. And so what is God to do, right? Those made in his image that are meant to honor him do the exact opposite, rebel against him, try to make their name great instead of his. So what is God to do? Does he wipe the dish and start all over again with a new world, new creation? He could have. Does he make himself the perfect judge, perfectly pour out his justice on all of us? He could have. What does he do? Gospel of John actually tells us in the first chapter, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the gospels start either at Christmas, the manger, or they start at John the Baptist ministry. Does anybody know where John, Gospel of John starts? In the beginning. It starts where Genesis 1 starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was God to do because of our failures? The creator became creation. The creator becomes creation. Jesus Christ, the son of God, God himself takes on flesh, not just as one made in the image of God, but as the exact image of the father. And he lives the perfect life that we were meant to live, rules in the perfect way that we were meant to rule. He's tempted by the serpent and he prevails. He's tested in a garden to stray from what God had sent him to do, yet he remains faithful. He never wavers. He never fails. He becomes the perfect representative of God. He becomes the perfect crescendo of creation where we failed, he succeeds. But he doesn't just live the perfect life we were meant to live. Though he was the perfect ruler, he also takes the penalty of our failure to rule. And so the uh, failure of the first Adam is covered over by the last Adam. In the same way that creation was broken because man took of a tree, creation will be redeemed by one man hanging on a tree. And because of him, we're actually brought back into the communion with God that we were created for. And one day we will inherit an eternal garden that can never be lost, an eternal garden with him that can never be lost. And so now, because of him, We don't primarily look at the stars. We don't just look at the created nature. We don't look at the trees and say, what is man that you are mindful of him? We look at one tree. We look at the cross and we say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Let me pray for us before we take communion. Father, we love you. We thank you that every step of the way, all throughout the scriptures, we see this tension of things that you've called us to do and yet uh, just constant failure on man's behalf. There's this constant crying out throughout the whole scriptures that we need a savior. You've given us commands and we fail every single time, even after our failure has become incredibly obvious and then we get your son. I praise you that every single, every single bit of tension we see in the scriptures is fulfilled in your son, that he is the perfect savior, he's the perfect representative, that we no longer rely on our strength, but we rely on his. We praise you, pray that his name would be made glorious in our lives, that our heart would just learn to worship. Again, we wouldn't view this as some, another effort to do, great, I gotta try harder to worship, rather we would see, we worship because you've already done it all. You've been the perfect ruler, we don't need to rule perfectly anymore. Our failures are covered over by your success. We praise you and pray that you would minister to our hearts as we take communion today. In your son's name, amen.